Hi folks, happy Monday. A little bit of housekeeping as per usual. Just to let you know that the the short piece Martin wrote about his experience, his most recent experience in hospital, has been published by the Irish Examiner. It's available now online. Uh, if you haven't already read it, please do, please share it. I think it's a really good account of the situation facing our medical professionals, frontline workers, and indeed our patients that are that are struggling in the system. Uh, in terms of what's coming up this week, later on today, I'm speaking to Queen's University Professor Colin Harvey uh, about what's happening in, in the UK uh, on turn, turning up the protocol, the EU's counter to that and what is the likely outcome for people on the island of Ireland. There is a lot more as well. Aidan Regan is joining us and I'm sitting down hopefully for a quick one-to-one with a Ukrainian uh, MP who happens to be in Dublin at the moment to discuss the latest there. The, that is just the next 36 hours. There's lots more available, lots more already already up there on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and it's the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month. Please do me a favour, hit pause now, click on the link and see if there's a level that you're happy to support us at. Uh, also excited to announce that we will be launching the new podcast with Garrett Mulvena and Sam McElwain uh, Shrapnel in the next week or two uh, and our patrons will have a sneak peek at that later on this week as well. Uh, looking forward to, to the reaction to that. Some really important conversations happening, especially when you think in terms of w- what we just said we're going to be talking to Colin Harvey about. We, we, can't, we can't go back and, uh, you know, Gareth and Sam are having some brilliant conversations with people from across the Loyalist Unionist community and Nationalist community. Uh, of course, it's not as one-dimensional as, as people like to think. It's much more nuanced. Uh, all of those, as quickly as I can turn them around, on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. I'll let you listen to the podcast. Thanks for your support. Good afternoon and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday special. We are back with a breakdown of some of the news of the week, some of the events of the week and some of the stories that maybe slipped a little bit under the radar or just we wanted to talk about in general. Uh, we've a packed show today and a packed panel. Uh, I'm thrilled to be joined by a regular contributor, defender of the Good Friday Agreement. And why I'm saying that more at the front is because it'll get more relevant as this conversation evolves. Uh, good friend, activist and uh, basically member of the Tortoise Shack, uh, um, uh, Emma D'Souza. We have first time uh, appearance on the Sunday show, but, you know, he he, he he stole the show on the late debate this week, folks. Uh, I actually thought I did very well, but apparently I wasn't even in the considerations uh, compared to uh, architect Alfonso Benilla. Alfonso, good to see you. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, and we are joined by uh, our our uh, member of the Starlings Collective. I'm sure she's going to insist that when I when I mention she's a member of Tenny, that she's here in a, in a personal capacity. But nonetheless, our good friend Lilith Freya Carroll is here. Lilith, great to see you. Hi, how's it going? Good morning or good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. And there also is a guy here called Martin McMahon, and we're not sure how long he'll last, but he looks. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, now it's nice. It's nice to see you up and about. Um, listen, folks, I want to get straight into an interesting. And interesting is, a, is probably a poor way of phrasing it. Uh, week in terms of the a lot of rhetoric, political rhetoric. Emma, I put it to you. You know of what's going to happen uh, around the protocol and how the the. British government, Westminster government, it must be stressed, uh, looking to break yet again another international agreement. Uh, and you're hearing more uh, vibes about what's happening in or it's coming maybe in the next 24, 36 hours. Can you share some of what you what you've been told uh, with our audience? That'd be great. 
Yeah, I mean, look, we've been here before. Um, it feels like a never-ending like episode of the Twilight Zone, uh, where we're all trapped in this cycle of the Northern Ireland Protocol Brexit, and we just can't seem to, to get anywhere with it. Um, we do have the legislation coming forward. It's meant to be coming out tomorrow, where it is widely considered that the British government is going to legislate to override significant portions of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And we've also had a similar uh, experience, I suppose, previously too, with the Internal Markets Bill, where they did also put forward legislation then, but then ultimately removed it. This seems to be much more concerted um, and much, uh, much larger in terms of its intention. So the legislation that's going to come forward tomorrow would be a case of the British government breaching international law. And what they're doing is claiming that they're doing that in order to protect the Good Friday Agreement, which is also an international agreement. Um, and it has to be said that this is being done against the wishes of the majority of MLAs and parties in Northern Ireland. Uh, polls indicate that the majority of the public supports the protocol remaining. Businesses have been coming out more vocally over the last week to say they support the protocol remaining. And so really a lot of this is being done not in the best wishes of the majority in Northern Ireland. And that has to be really stipulated and hammered home. Now, I'm getting um, getting some, I suppose, information about what to expect tomorrow. And it appears that there's going to be an effort to apply cross-community consent to the Northern Ireland Protocol through legislation. Now, what that does is it takes a part of the Good Friday Agreement, which is the cross-community consent mechanism, and it adds it to um, applying to an international agreement, which is not part of the Good Friday Agreement. The cross-community consent mechanism applies only to specific issues that are devolved in Northern Ireland for the Assembly. And I've heard that there is an intention behind that beyond the protocol. So if they apply cross-community consent to the Northern Ireland Protocol's international agreement, that sets a precedent that if there was a border pool, there would have to be cross-community consent for there to be reunification on the island of Ireland. And there is intention behind doing that as well. That's um, that's so. That's actually contrary to the the whole basis of if there was to be a border poll, how how it would be run if it was to happen, say theoretically tomorrow. It, you know the, the fifty plus one mechanism and and the consent on both on both sides for for the referendum to be held and and all of those things. So that would be effectively giving some form of I, I'm going to use that that phrase that we heard all the time a backstop. To, to say that, yeah. Uh, yeah. but it, it, would, well, it would effectively mean there would never be a united Ireland, right? Because look, you know, uh, political unionism supports the union as a, in, in general. So unionists are are going to continue to to have that aspiration. Hmm. So if cross community consent were to be applied to the border pool question, it would make it very difficult, really, for there ever to be a united Ireland. It sets a very dangerous precedent, um, and it is a divergence, as you say, from the text of the Good Friday Agreement. It is, whilst the British government claims these measures are being done to protect the Good Friday Agreement, it actually would be a divergence from the text of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and, you know, it's also worth saying that I have a personal stake in this whole thing, too, because I was listening to Brandon Lewis this morning, and he was on Sophie Ridge, and he was going on about how the Good Friday Agreement is paramount. It takes primacy over everything else. And I'm like, well, why was I in court for five years then with you guys saying that the Good Friday Agreement was something they couldn't be bound to? So there is, you know, a serious amount of duplicity and uh, disingenuousness to what they're doing at the moment. But they're so effective at cutting forward these sound bites, these media points that are really easily digested. That it's very hard for those of us who are trying to cut forward the complexity, the nuance, the legislation that actually applies 
in an effective way to counter that kind of of soundbitey, you know, stuff I, that they do. I saw this morning that Mary Lou MacDonald referred to that kind of soundbitey, easy disposable throwaway phrase as mesmerizing language, Emma. Do you think it's mesmerizing or do you think it's just deflecting onto an electorate that's so sick and tired of the Tories that it just accepts anything? Yeah, well, I mean, look, you know, we know through looking at politics in general that language that's easily digestible, that, um, you know, is something that people can sort of attach a problem to is effective. It's used a lot in populism in terms of you see that with the rise of populist leaders, how there's a complex issue such as immigration that people don't fully understand. And they point a finger at something and say, this is the issue, this is the problem, and I'm going to fix it for you. And they do it in a very effective way in terms of how they communicate it. It's a similar thing that's being done with the Tories at the moment. And it can be hard to counter that language. I think Mary Lou was right describing it as mesmerizing because people just want an easy answer to these issues. They don't want to have this sort of complex um, you know, thing drawn out any longer. There's definitely fatigue here as well. Yeah, I, I've, I've just brought in um, Sam McElwain and, you know, listeners will be well aware of Sam's con- contributions to this podcast over the last number of years. And he's also uh, busily recording his, his own se- his own series that we'll be launching called Shrapnel. And uh, I've heard I've, I've, I've heard three or four of them so far, Sam, and it's, it's going to be great listening. But anyway, relevant to what Emma was saying, can you give me your perspective, uh, you know, speaking? And of course, you don't speak uh, for all of uh, all of loyalism or unionism, but you can give us a share of. Uh, an opinion of what of what uh, it, it says to you and how and how it how it's been playing out the last few days. Well, on, on a personal note, what, what Emma said there at the end um, about fatigue, yeah, I'm getting sick and tired of it as well. But we're going round the houses, we're playing with language, we're changing the goalposts every two minutes, and, and what that does, it, it it takes away from us the, the sort of weight that we need to be changing our stance. I mean, Doug Beatty is going in the right direction with some of the stuff that he's doing, maybe not far enough, but there are people out there within the loudest community that are listening to him. Um, and what it's forcing us to do is look at the promoting membership of the union in a positive light, look for better language, look for more positivity, why we should be staying within the UK. And that is the unionism that I subscribe to, and that's the unionism that I want to, to belong to. Um, the negative stuff that goes on around this, I have no time we're crook for. But we're at with the situation again where we're, we're trusting the Tories with what's going to happen in the next couple of days. And, and the first question I have to ask is why they're moving? Why, why are they doing this? What is being held over their heads? Because I have, I have no belief that they're doing this for the benefit of the people of Northern Ireland. They're doing it for their own benefit. So what is that benefit? Where, where are we looking at? Where is going to be the loss for my community, because if we're going to give something to us, they're going to be looking at something in return. Um, the second part is, if we keep moving the goalposts, what where does that put us in good standing with the, the nationalist community that we need to get along with, that we need to build bridges with, that we need to bring with us in our belief that we are better off in the UK? If we're going to keep moving things, if we're going to keep changing the rules to suit ourselves, it negates the reasons for us to be here. We may as well just let the Tories run, run riot and we'll just keep going. It. I, I want Northern Ireland to work for all. I, I want the people of Northern Ireland to want to be in the union. Um, and if Boris Johnson's going to do this, it, it's it's taking some steam out of the stuff that we are doing. Um, now, I also believe that what Doug Bedia said this week regarding of where the summer could go, he is not saying it to, as some would say, a gaslight. Doug is very measured. Doug will only repeat the stuff that he thinks is, is genuine. And I genuinely believe that he's getting information that 
things could get a bit hot and heavy. Um, and some of the some of the stuff that will come out in our podcast is there to remind people that when it gets hot and heavy, there are consequences, uh, and those consequences are very human. Uh, I, I for one, do not want to see a return to that. Um, and everybody at the minute wants to protect the Good Friday Agreement. Well, isn't that brilliant? <laughs> isn't that awesome? They haven't wanted to work with it within the last 20 years for yeah, some reason, but, but all of a sudden it's popular. Isn't it, isn't it, this is always the ironic thing because, you know, this is not the first time obviously Sam and Emma have been on the podcast. It, it can, and you always say, you know, yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful to we could talk about protecting it, but how about in implementing it? How about re how, how about putting it into place? And just before we do move on, can I ask you for, you know, your take on what Sam is saying? Obviously, we, we have to find some sort of common ground here, whether it's in in the shared island initiatives that we're all involved in across. Because I, you know, no one, I, I don't even like that phrase, Sam. I'm sorry, like no one wants to go back to that. We should just want to say, no fucking way, are we going back there? Um, and you know, but Emma, when you hear the, the that sort of stuff, it's it is kind of. I mean, I spoke about it on the radio myself this week saying, like, we don't understand the, the, the risks that we are, the games that can be played, you know, s- stupid songs, bad uh, sectarian fra- um, chants and things like that. All of that very simply can can spill over into escalations and escalations mean people get hurt. Uh, and I just, uh, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't countenance that. What do you, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, we know only too well here in the North the power of language and what can come from inflamed rhetoric. Um, And we saw some of it spilling out last year already. And um, this whole thing with unilateral action and the constant threats of of shifting things around the protocol just creates more instability. It definitely doesn't give us any more. Um, And it kind of undercuts and undermines a lot of the hard work being done by people like Sam in communities trying to get people to trust that we can find a negotiated solution. Um, And I think that what we actually really need are more, you've heard me say this before, but we need more spaces for dialogue. We need more North-South cooperation. We need more barriers being broken down. And we also have to work as well in terms of the, um, you know, the North, uh, Northeast relationships as well, just to ensure that we are trying to um, work together to try and find a common solution. I think that um, we're going into dangerous territory here. And when Sam said about the, uh, what's the motivation behind it? I mean, the motivation, I think, is due to the fact that Boris Johnson is in a very weakened position. We did have see the confidence vote on him last Monday. Um, and that has now placed him in a precarious place where he has to sort of shore up the ERG and the more right-wing Brexiteer side of his own party. I think that Sam is right to point out that, you know, a lot of this is is about their own interests. And we're all, uh, regardless of what community we come from in Northern Ireland, are acutely aware of the fact that the best interests of Northern Ireland are not at the heart of what's happening here in Westminster at the moment. And that just make, means it's more important than ever for those of us who are trying to find a way to move through and find a negotiated solution to have to work harder together to do that. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Sam. Great contributions. And it gives us a much better picture of what's going on in the attic. Um, I'm going to move us on a bit. It's Pride Month, and it's great that it's Pride Month. And I'm going to move us on to Lilith. Lilith, Pride Month should be a great time of the year. Everybody should be rejoicing that we live in a country where Pride Month is celebrated, where we have marches, where we have buy-in from everybody. And yet, for the last month, all we've had wall-to-wall media is turf nonsense. It's not coming from the grassroots. It's imported culture wars coming through the media. Um, I saw a comment during the week. This will be discussed on the doorsteps by the tiny, tiny amount of turfs that are in this country. 
and it, it won't be discussed on the doorsteps because people don't, don't generally discuss this. We're very accepting in Ireland. We accept people for who they are, the way they are. How does it feel to be on the receiving end of such dogmatic rhetoric, Lilith? There goes Martin didn't get the stay positive memo. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's grand. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think um, like towards the end, of, end of the week there, I, I, it was it, it did get to me a bit. It was quite upsetting, uh, you know, having two days devoted to to a, a lot of that on kind of the most popular radio show in the country and everything uh, like that. <laughs> um. But you know they, there are like there are positives and, and successes um, with regards to the to the trans community as well that I think are worth uh, celebrating. Uh, recently, uh, last few months um, or last few weeks, uh, we um, now have over a thousand people in Ireland that have done a gender uh, recognition cert, which is just. An, it, it's it's wonderful it's 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 amazing you know um and you know we we have just had a, a you know a trans woman elected onto the boards uh, of uh, the national women's council which is i think it's a, it's a great success and you know and um, she was voted by um by the by a significant majority of the women's groups um that exist in this country you know so um, there there's a, a, an overwhelming mandate and um, for for uh, to have a trans woman there, you know, which which are all great positives. Um, you know, we have had um, some really difficult um, conversations over the last few days, and uh, you know, you look uh, when I look at the world and what's going on, it, it can be it, it can be really kind of distressing to see what's happening. And um, like we do, like we we're kind of seeing what the outcomes of a lot of these sort of arguments and. Um, that are being kind of put put out there uh, are, are are could end up being if if um, you know this isn't properly countered. You know, like recently in in uh, in Utah, they passed um, they passed uh, uh, legislation that basically says that if a, if an athlete in the school, so we're talking about kids here, um, is suspected of being trans, then they can be submitted to genital examinations. Suspected. So if somebody seems to have a bit of an advantage or if somebody just doesn't really like a particular person on a team or if they think that they can get some advantage, they can just kind of flag somebody as a suspected of being trans and that child and, can be we, we subjected to genital examination. This, 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 this also passed in Ohio last week. It's been these 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 are making their way through several U.S. Senates. Uh, and th th there's discussions about it now. But like when I when I think about it, I mean, um, I, I I saw it on online. I thought it was very interesting that that one of the yeah. we've had um, Tatiana uh, Bartoletta, who was like a four time Olympic gold medalist on this podcast previously for the US uh, relay team. And she was saying that she was actually put through all of this ringer because she was really good at what she did. So she had all of that questioning going on. So, yeah, it's, it's not unusual. Lilith, but but pride itself, pride month, like. The one thing I do push back about when I go along is is the corporatization of it. You know, uh, the the uh, throwing throwing a rainbow flag on something and uh, and saying that we're all inclusive now. Uh, and uh, it's you know here's a here's a pride pen and uh, maybe 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 an umbrella for your golf your game of golf. Um, how, what does pride kind of mean though? Because I'm I'm conscious of you know we were always told pride means protest but you know it, it also now has been corporatized in, in in some ways 
It has, yeah. I think, yeah, Pride for me is a protest. It's also um, a celebration. Um, it, it, it's both, you know, and, and you know, it's it's about having that balance. You know, it, it is a commemoration of a, of the Stonewall uprising, um, uh, and uh, at the same time, it is it's a celebration of how far we've come. Um, and you know, and at the same time, you know, yes, there's this like corporatization of, of pride, which can be, you know, can be kind of ridiculous at times and uh, kind of seeing, you know, corporations kind of sticking their kind of little rainbow and, uh, you know, on their logos for a month and then it sort of all suddenly disappears, for example, or the kind of the using of uh, kind of uh, pride to sort of pinkwash and uh, maybe uh, difficult or, uh, you know, um, the transphobic or homophobic uh, elements within the organization that, that are doing this, you know, but at the same time, like I look around and like there's so many prides in Ireland now, you know, every, uh, you know, you know, in in every town in Ireland and in many different counties in Ireland, there there are prides, and they're not really corporate prides to me. They're community prides. They're communities yeah. coming together. They're families. They're allies. They're all coming out to celebrate. Donegal would you know, be a great the, example. Yeah, the pictures, the, the images out of Donegal were were, yeah. were really um, something else. So I will say, uh, can I come to Alfonso Benia? And he, we wouldn't didn't think maybe we we're going to go there, Alfonso. But I'd, I'd like to ask you what pride means. As a as as a as a as a Mexican uh, architect in in, in Dublin, uh, and and also a a, a happily settled uh, uh, gay man with, with with what I say, you know, your 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 other fella has the best head of hair I know, you know. But um, what does pride mean, uh, and how do you see it now uh, in through that through that immigrants uh, immigrants eyes? Uh, thanks, Tony. Yeah, a little bit, and uh, I didn't expect uh, to be asked, but I think. It's an opportunity, um, like as a person who is involved in, in society, I think it's an opportunity to make sure that um, whenever you find a moment of privilege that you might have, that you don't squander that. And I think pride is that moment when um, if you are a queer person or you know whatever your alphabet uh, letter might be, you have to make sure that you take advantage of that, of those small type of moments of privilege to make sure that what you do makes a positive, uh, like a positive influence for everybody else under the umbrella. And I think um, we probably need to remind ourselves that um, a lot of the times, as uh, sorry, as Lilith has just said, um, corporate money is uh, squandering the opportunity to, to make that difference. So instead of pumping the money into buying uh, plastic rainbow flags or giving their staff uh, rainbow mugs or whatever, you know, they should really think about using that vast amount of money that is available to them and directly uh, investing in the right resources to empower the people that are within their, their organizations to make sure that they have a platform to speak about what they want to see change in their own corporate environment or in their personal environment. So, uh, Otherwise, if you don't have the capacity, I think you just, you know, maybe take the time, pay pay the the money to to sponsor um, to sponsor people, and you know, don't if you're not gonna have a consistent uh, practice around the world because a lot of these multinational companies have uh, operations in countries that are really problematic. If you're not gonna be consistent with that, then shut up, put some money into the into the right people's hands. And uh, don't pretend that you have a rainbow flying that's that's going to make it all better. So it's just a moment of opportunity. 
Alfonso, being here in Ireland, and, and you can you can look at us somewhat as an outsider and say, take a particular overview. Everything we've discussed this morning is based upon one group's set of rights uh, being pitted against another group's set of rights. Do you think Ireland is unusual for this? Do you think that we are unusual? We have so many divides between those who have access to rights and those who don't. Oof. Um, that's a complex question. And I think um, everybody's looking for everybody's looking for a good living standard. Every single individual, right? Whenever you wake up in the morning, you kind of look to your left. If there's somebody that's your first kind of uh, loyalty to, then you go look in the mirror. That's another person that you're loyal to. And then you look into your immediate community. And, and I think that we have to remember that everybody's trying to make sure that they have a good opportunity to thrive. And if we look at the, 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 um, if we look at, at the, I don't want to say conflict, but at, at the challenges that are, that we see whenever we have, you know, either political divides or social divides or whatever, we have to probably try to look at it through that lens. Everybody's trying to make sure that they have a good chance in life. And that's going to require everybody from every single part of, of the things that we do professionally and personally to make sure that we remember that. Because I know that there's a lot of people who might be, you know, uh, very publicly on social media saying terrible stuff about individuals or communities. Um, but that's that's not up to us to change their minds. So we, we have to make sure that, um, you know, we continue trying our best, knowing that in trying our best, what we're going to make, the, the positive changes that we're going to create are also going to benefit those who don't like us. And that's okay. Because in benefiting those who don't like us, they will maybe find the opportunity to change the way they see things. I, I think that's sorry, Lilith, you want to come in and thanks for that, Alfonso. And I'm thanks. sorry to put you on the spot like that. I know you're here to talk housing, but anyway, look, <laughs> sorry, Lilith. Yeah, no, I just, I wanted to kind of maybe just kind of come back to, to that. I think, you know, sometimes you hear that slogan like trans rights or human rights. And, uh, you know, you might say, well, what human rights do trans people not have? But I think that the thing is, is that um, trans rights are universal and they're indivisible. Um, and one of the one of the uh, central trans uh, um, human rights that we have is the right to a private life. That's why we have gender recognition. That's why we, uh, you know, there was uh, over twenty year court case by uh, Dr. Lydia Foy in order for um, uh, gender rec recognition to exist in this country. And that's why we have the the legislation that we do. And what you know when trans people um you know have a right to a private life that means that they have a right to correct their birth certs so that they're not kind of subjected to having to prove their transness every time they want to take a leak uh, and you know that needs to be expanded to non-binary people so that non-binary people have that recognition uh, are, are legally recognized in this country and the under 18s are recognized as well and it's you know um you know separate away from this sort of medicalization of one's uh you know legal right to be to be themselves and to have that private right that's the crux of it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why we also want to make sure that uh, healthcare is depathologized, that uh, ICD-11 uh, and, and the in, in, uh, international classification of diseases, which has moved uh, trans healthcare to the area of sexual health, um, that uh, trans healthcare is depathologized, that it's informed consent and in the community. So it does link back to, tra- to human rights. It does link back to, to um, you know, to, to, to trans people being able to live their lives and have a private life and to be believed and understood and affirmed within their themselves isn't it isn't it funny you keep mentioning that right to privacy and that was what roe versus wade was not a, an abortion bill it was not a reproduction it was it was a privacy bill it was a women a woman's right or a pregnant person's right to talk to her doc, doctor their doctor and get the cho- get the health care they want and that was between them and it was un- it was unpeeled on that basis and emma you talked about the uh that the impending um the impending changes coming t- towards the protocol in the next the next while we also hear that the you know the, the the first written leak on the Roe versus Wade uh, decision is go- the, the the updated version of that is is due any day now they're they're expecting it as, uh, by Tuesday, uh, and again I know to pick on you and Sam for a minute uh, the, the 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 legislation in in the in the north is talk of it being just just been taken over again by Westminster when it comes to reproductive choice in 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 the north and isn't it terrible that that's where we have to go here. Yeah, I think it is terrible. Um, I think that the fact that Westminster has to intervene and has had to intervene also around the Irish language legislation really does um, force us to have to have a conversation, I think, about whether the institutions are operating the way they should be and whether or not we have to look at some form of reform to be able to have effective governance in Northern Ireland. Because too often it seems that a minority are in a position to be able to halt progress on basic human rights. Um, and we really shouldn't be in that place. So, I mean, I hope that the legislation does come through from Westminster soon on this. I think actually they've delayed it quite a lot. Um, we know Brandon Lewis has been saying for quite some time that he's going to bring forward um, services. And it just seems to always be pushed down the road a little bit further. So hopefully we'll get some traction soon. And Sam? Um... Yeah, it seems to be whenever we have to have grown up politics, we run back to the parents at Westminster and let them make the big hard decisions because we can't or won't make those decisions. Um, I think it's about time that our politicians took the training wheels off um, and actually learned to do the job that they're paid quite handsomely for and make the tougher decisions. It's all right filling in a few potholes or deciding what recycling bins are going out and where they're going to be. But when it gets to grown up politics and these uh divisive um, decisions that we make, they run away and they hide and they let other people make that decision for them. It's not the way they should be going. Um, I do want to move on and I do want to actually come to Alfonso on on the current ongoing continued hassle around the the house uh, around the housing situation built to rent and a few things but i want to mention one thing that's quite you know i think it's quite funny that um i know funan sheen has been banging the drum for a while about the the political parties uh, effectively legalizing making themselves charities so they can do their uh, they can sell their raffle tickets to keep their fundraising going um i do think it's kind of outrageous that that that, that is i know funan is, is beating the drum but I don't think it's going to get enough traction with the public. I do think it's a scandal and I think something has to be done. Uh, we we have already got problems in this country, I believe, with the level of access lobbyists have and their interaction with that. There are mean, These are also ways and means for people to receive do- corporate donations through 
these things. And now with, with the stroke of a pen, the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, added a, added a couple of lines and has effectively legalized this as, as a way to raise funds for the party. So anyway, look, that's a little rant out of the way. Alfonso, you... Uh, Stole the show when you were brought on um, the RTE this week, and you know you absolutely did. Uh, but but you've been—it's nothing new to people who've been following you, who've spoken to you. I mean, I mean, you spoke to Rory on Reboot a few months ago as well. You, you know, you yourself and Rob have not been shy about talking about the, the problems with the built to rent model. But one of the phrases that kind of people don't seem to really understand you you talk about the urban environment and how you know we're going to be left with this legacy if we continue to develop these sites these good sites as, as i put it during the week to these models do you want to just give us an first of all a little overview of of why you object to it and what you think the legacy will be if we don't change policy thanks tony and uh just to say i think the my shortage of knowledge in uh in in the previous uh subjects i hope that i make up for them in in this section <laughs> uh, so well i want to start with good news right uh for some time i have been kind of banging on about repealing uh sppr8 which is specific planning policy requirement number 8 which opened the door for built to rent schemes this was a ministerial mandate uh, which was drafted by the former minister Owen Murphy. And the good news is that up until this point, I kind of felt like a little bit of a radical saying, oh, we have to repeal SPPR 8. But on the 9th of June, so literally a couple days or a few days ago, the Irish Planning Institute. So this is not a group of radical lefties. This is, <laughs> this is a body that represents planners across the state, across Ireland. So this is a group that represents all planners in this country sent a letter to the minister for uh, so to to um, uh, Peter Burke um, and they actually are calling for the repeal of specific planning policy requirements so I want to quote their their letter it is the Institute's view that these SPPRs fundamentally alter the plan-led ethos and have brought about since their adoption a developer-led process that is in inimical to the common good principles that should underpin the planning system. In addition, the SPPRs offend against the principle of subsidiarity. Furthermore, the fact that planning authorities at both local and national level, like Amborpanala, are obliged to apply these mandatory guidelines significantly undermines the public's confidence in the planning process and the impartiality of this of these bodies. So they're, they're not just saying this to, to bring it up as, a, as an idea. They're just saying at the end, in a, that in a genuinely planned system, there is no justification whatsoever for the retention, for the retention of SPPRs. So well, the, 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 the argument back and again, I don't adhere to it, is that, oh, we have to do this or we can't have a profit. Or we did, lads can't make a profit and then nothing will get built. Well, you know, they, they can be saying this uh, left, right and center, but we know that that's not the case. Now, see, there, there's quite a few issues, right? We know that there's uh, recent news about the Land Development Agency looking for more land. Uh, but we also know that in uh, 2018, whenever it was launched, uh, mm -hmm. NAMA and local authorities controlled, about, controlled enough land for about 100,000 dwellings. 147,000 dwellings, if you, if you put it at kind of sort of O'Devany type densities. Yeah. And that, like, if you remove O'Devany Gardens and uh, the Ulster Trainers, uh, that's still a huge amount of land that's available for, for construction. And so I think what we're doing is we're not asking the right people the right questions. We're asking uh, 
people who know how to make money, how to ensure that those who are looking to make money out of the housing crisis make more money so that they, we can entice them into building uh, numbers. And, mm. and that's effectively, we're just pumping numbers to, to put on, sheet, on, on spreadsheets uh, to make sure that the government looks good at the end of the term. And this is very dangerous because we know that it's not, it's not leading us into a path of, of good built environments. And I kind of come back to why I'm looking at built to rent as a as an existential crisis for for this country. Um, and I'm, it, it's I, I put it as simply as I could uh, in the late debate, which is if you think about every okay, if you're looking for a new home, let's say that you're you're living with your parents or you're or you're renting or whatever whatever your situation might be. If you're looking for a new home, you're gonna be looking for very specific things about this new home, but not only about the room sizes. You're going to think about where you want to live and what's what's going to be available to you where you move. So you're probably going to want, uh, you know, maybe you want uh, schools or infrastructure or maybe you want to set up your own business. So you want to make sure that where you live is close to a place where you can set up a business or, um, you know, whatever you, you want to. You're going to want to live somewhere where it's worth your where it's worth your while spending a bunch of money and, and, and sinking a lot of your personal capital. Um, to probably a 20, 40 year uh, timeline. And that involves service land, like you said, good, good land. And right now, built to rent schemes, all, all investors who are invested in built to rent uh, schemes are actually trying to get that same land. And they have infinite pockets to make sure that they can afford to buy that land. So they, they will make sure that they outbid, outbid people uh, and you know each other. So that we're competing with bags of cash of international uh, funds that don't have that that they know that they can spend a little bit more can, money can, to make can, sure I, can, I, can I come in on that just for the benefit of listeners I was reading something last night because I'm, I'm a nerd but there was a private equity um, uh, social um, outcome uh, paper I was reading and it was actually showing that this will cost lives um, that healthcare uh, actually suffers if if lived environment suffers and in one of the studies they read it was a u.s study albeit but again you know where we take our lead from quite often there was 10 percent more 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 a higher mortality rate out of some of these bad built built environments which is which is a really toxic thing to actually put on paper but you know when we're dealing with economists uh usually when we're, when we're talking about these things um they understand pounds pence but i wonder what value we put on an, an additional 10 percent mortality rate in some of these lived badly built lived environments which is you know when you're playing a numbers game alfonso they're saying we just need to throw up fifty thousand of these units as opposed to building fifty thousand homes to build communities in yeah and that's that's a huge problem because the the approach that the those who are kind of like who have the ear of the ministers making the rules those who have the ears of the ministers making the rules um are aligned with that kind of mentality of like if you put one arm in the fire and one arm in the freezer on average you're okay right so their idea of like redensifying our cities is to say well we have we have a generally two-story built environment. So we need to build, uh, you know, 60 stories. We need to build 20 stories in every new scheme. That's not how it works because sure, one arm will be in the freezer and one arm will be in the fire. So on average, you'll be okay. But clearly you will definitely not be okay. And, and we need to kind of put that, that metaphor against these 
kind of like easy and simple solutions that we hear thrown out. The solutions to the housing crisis are not simple and they're not, they're not as simple as build tall and then you'll, you'll get your way. So one of the solutions, which I think is right by the, uh, by the uh, Irish Planning Institute is definitely we need to, to, we need to get rid of the SPPRs. Uh, we certainly need to make sure that all new housing schemes have a high percentage of homes for ownership um, because clearly there is a lack of, you know, there's a lack of supply, as they say, of homes for rent, but also for ownership. If there is no, there is no additional uh, new homes for purchase, people are going to be stuck in, in a rental uh, uh, limbo uh, for the rest of their lives. And for those who want to achieve a path to home ownership, that's not going to be possible. It doesn't matter how many built to rent schemes we allow. Yeah. No, no, to, just to put that in context, as I said, since 2017, um, housing delivery has increased by 43%, but the number of houses available to buy has decreased by 8%. And if you add this to, I was actually just, I was trying to get into uh, uh, an article that Killian Woods wrote, uh, Daniel Murray and Killian Woods and Ellie Donnelly in the Business Post today, uh, which reads, firms buying up homes in attempt to secure workers are, as housing, housing crisis deepens. So the trend has become apparent amid huge labor shortages, but, uh, and I couldn't read the whole thing, so, so somehow I, I can't access it right now. But anyway, um, we knew that the hotel, uh, like the, 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 um, hospitality sector was looking at buying homes to secure uh, housing for their staff. And now we have more businesses who are speaking to reporters to say, yeah, we are buying homes because our staff needs somewhere to buy. So we have not regular average citizens with average salaries looking for new homes. We have business owners looking for new homes for their staff. We have um, investor funds looking for land for rental schemes to develop. So we are in this, like the, the, the housing mess is a really fast growing monster. And it's, it's actually really worrying because the changes that we need to enact are so huge and are so kind of all encompassing that it's actually very difficult for us, for us to see the whole picture. So whenever I was talking about uh, when we're gonna see the consequences of our inaction, it's actually got to be in three or four years time. So right now, when you look outside, things are great compared to what they're going to be like. If you think that prices right now are, you know, as I said, uh, you know, affordability is out of We just have to wait in three or four years time when we have a number of built rent schemes staring back at us in the face. We are going to see the consequences then. Yeah, just, Alfonso, can I can I just say and it, it's it's back, you said you look out the window. But there seems to be a disjoint in housing policy in Ireland. <clears throat> we talk about built to rent apartments and we look at them for one or two people. But in reality, these built to rent apartments are housing families. They're not housing one to two people. We have hotels which are housing refugees. We have hostels which are housing homeless people, but not people who should be homeless. Everything is out of step. And when you do actually look out the window, and I'm, I'm always struck by the party in that movie, The Big Short, where they actually went out and looked and stood on the ground and looked what was happening. If you look at what's happening, actually stand on the ground in Ireland, we're not providing housing for those who need housing. We're just not doing it. 
built around apartments, supposedly for one or two people. And yet we have some of the highest density levels in Europe at the moment. It's not one to two people. It's full families living in substandard small accommodation. Why does that disjoint exist? We see it. We understand it's there. We, I mean, all you have to do is walk around any set of apartments in the country and you will see it is not single people. It is not couples. It is families struggling in substandard spaces. Why do we have this disconnect, Alfonso? Because of the thinking that one arm in the fire, one arm in the freezer, so on average, you're okay. So we have too many semi-Ds, too many uh, whatever. So on average, we need more one and two-bed apartments. That's what's getting us this ridiculous mix of housing that is not going to work. So we need apartments that are fit for families to grow. We, like right now, we have a lot of people who are living with their parents in their, in their terrace homes. And I'd say they, they might be looking into the future and, and, or in the future, we might think and be like, well, how, how lucky were we that our parents had a box room where we could stay to endure the crisis. And in the future, we're going to have, like you said, people, more people living in these substandard accommodation typologies, uh, and they're going to be suffering a lot. And it's, it's really not fair. And You know, whenever I give out about this and, and people really do come at me with some really nasty attacks on, on online, like I don't particularly care because what I'm actually doing is making it better even for them. I'm, like the fact that I'm banging, up, banging on about this is going to make things better for them. So like it, it's really frustrating. And, and actually I heard um, Mel Reynolds talk, talk about the Land Development Agency and I could hear in his voice this frustration. And I think if you talk to architects in general, you're going you're gonna to see this frustration of our inability to make a dent In the in the ideological nonsense that is driving our housing and, and city delivery. Can, can I uh, can I can I come in and make a cheeky uh, lift the curtain for listeners? Um, Mel made a, a, a bet a few years ago where he said he was going to build a, a, on a certain site um, and deliver more units than the land development agency did because when they launched in 2018, the land yeah. development agency promised hundreds of uh, coming online by 2020. Never mind 2022. And uh, and and Mel, uh, Mel texted me the other day with a screenshot of the bet saying they owe me 20 quid. <laughs> he'd, he'd, he'd finished his site and they hadn't delivered one unit yet. So it is an absolute uh, disgrace. And it's not in a country that has no shortage of land. And again, the, the housing crisis is not just unique. Uh, it's shared. It's across the island of Ireland. And yet, you know, we know we, we have the space, we have the capacity and we're allowing you know, these, these sites to, to just be land capture value happening. And, and we, we've had that conversation. I just don't know uh, if you're, you're right to point out one thing, the minister put together a housing commission and some of the people on that are some of the most high profile economists, not architects that, uh, that are involved in it. So that's not to, 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 to denigrate the actual wider commission, but it just shows where, where some of the opinion is shaped. Um, I am conscious of time, guys, but I would I would like to go back to Lilith and 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 ask um, Lilith just not can we can can we say one thing that was positive this week? I, I want to say that despite the 
you know, the, the stoking of tensions. I do think overwhelmingly the reaction has been supportive, positive and saying we don't want this here. We don't we don't support it. We, we actually, you know, our, our uh, members of the LGB and T community and our, 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 our brothers, sisters, uh, aunts, uncles and all around. Did you feel that 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 actually did? Because I, I, I like to think that that was the case as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, for my sins, I was, I was, listening, you know, looking at at, at uh, kind of the responses and the hashtags and and that sort of a thing, and yeah, I, I think the majority of people were were pretty disgusted about um what what what's been happening what's been happening over the last while. I think that maybe people kind of feel like you know wondering you know maybe just spacing trans rights or human rights or trans women or, or women are just kind of hollow phrases and maybe a feeling like well what can we do what can we say what you know what what's what's uh you know what's needed to kind of turn the tide um i think that uh you know uh, if, if you do know trans people in your life just checking in on them and making sure that they're okay and letting them know that you support them and that you uh you know that you believe in you believe them and you affirm them i think that we need to um you know understand that the main uh, the, the main thing that the trans community are, are, are asking for is uh, access to informed consent healthcare in our communities uh, and uh, also legal recognition for non-binary people and people under the age of of of, uh, of 18. Uh, I used to say under under 16 but unfortunately because healthcare for, uh, uh, access has uh, practically or has pretty much collapsed and um, you know uh, 16 and 17 year olds can't uh, legally change their genders either because you need two letters from a psychiatrist and a psychologist and and, and have to go to the court in order to actually change that but because of the la- the, the collapse in the health system that's now being shut off for people so you know the, these are the things that we you know if you you know talk to people about talk to your local politician about talk to you know that that those are the things that need to be kind of brought up in the in conversations so that people can understand that, that that these are the actual needs that we have and rather than kind of maybe kind of giving too much uh, credence to what you do that are kind of rhetoric that's been kind of uh, thrown around, you know, and, um, you know, being trans is not an ideology. It's just part of who uh, people are. You know, we're, we weren't the groups that were uh, putting in our, in the, in the census, uh, believer in biology and the religion section, yeah. <laughs> you know. So. Although in the week that we saw, was it another guy in Texas trying to say uh, outlaw drag, outlaw drag queens? I mean, it's a strange. Yeah. Have you ever seen str- the panto? Like, like you know, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, trans it's, and kids. As I said, to Tony when he when we were discussing that we did discuss this every Shakespearean part every female part was played by by a man in Shakespeare every single part was played by a man the idea that somebody would act a part uh, as as a different gender is just yeah. so old and so part of us yeah, and it's important to kind of come back to Texas a bit actually as well because you know that's the outcome of kind of you know saying that trans kids aren't who they say they are because in 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 texas if you are seen to be affirming your trans child you're reported to uh to child protection services there was a case there very recently where a 16 year old saw what was happening and tried to end their own lives and when uh they were uh when they were in recovery um, in, in an institution and the staff realized what was going on, they felt obliged because of the way that the uh, system is set up there to report the parents. Uh, you know, that's the outcomes of, of uh, and, many and can, of these kind of, uh, you know, rhetorical conversations that are happening. It's insane. Like and the SB8 started in Texas as well. 
the the, the that, that was the beginning of the end of, of Roe versus Wade. I do want to I do want to have one last question, maybe, and I I I will take comments from anybody here. And I, I do also say so. There was one question in the audience about the housing referendum. I do think it will happen. I do think it will be watered down. I don't think Fine Gael are very keen on it. But what it does is it gives it doesn't give the right to immediate everybody to be housed or a three bed semi or, a, or whatever it is. It's the right to, to that we progress towards adequate housing for all citizens of the state. That's that's how simple it really should be. And as, as easy as it is, check out like the, the, the shift.org where they have the directives that that are that we're already bound by the U.N., but because Ireland we point at our own constitution. We don't have a constitutional right to, to housing. Um, we have a constitutional right to private property, and that remains at, at odds. But I, um, Martin, this is to you. You wrote a piece this week about how troubling your your most recent experience of the of the health service has been, uh, and we've seen the first time the actual numbers go. I think it's now one in one. It's oh, more than one in five people in Ireland are now on a hospital waiting list of some order, and 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 it's not much better. Um, in the I know up north it's worse. It's the worst performing thing in all of the of the UK numbers as well. So Martin, tell us a little about your experience and why you think that doctors and nurses are as you put to me. Uh, been let down well that piece is going to be in the examiner later on today tony so we're, we've, we've been we've been uh published in the examiner so basically what it is is i'm glad i wrote it for you so there aren't enough services there aren't enough services that's that's the bottom line and there is we are being pitted against each other sick people are being pitted against each other for dwindling resources that is the bottom line this is the game that I have always found that Fine Gael have played in government was to, to put us against each other um, to fight with each other. I should be fighting with an old man who needs my bed. I need my bed. An old man needs my bed. And we are pitted against each other in a system where one of us is going to be thrown out of the system. Not that we don't need healthcare. It's just that the other one is closer to dying faster. So they need the healthcare more. And that's really what the piece is about, is about we have let it get to the point, and we've all turned a blind eye. Every single one of us have turned a blind eye. And we are now at the stage where I think that the health service has collapsed. I don't think it is pending. I don't think it's a crisis. I think it has collapsed. And I think the only thing holding it together at the moment is the goodwill of frontline staff. And whilst they are doing their absolute best, and I mean they're doing their best to make sure everybody's accommodated, maybe that's the wrong move. Maybe they should just throw up their hands and say, we're closing a and &E. There is nothing more we can do. You fix the problem. Now, the reason they don't do it and the reason they never do it is because they are altruistic people who are doing those jobs, not for money. I mean, there's no way you'd be a money a nurse for money. Absolutely no way. It's not there in it. So they're doing it to keep this health system apart. They're trying their best. Really and truly, they should throw their hands up and say, we're done. You broke it. You fix it. Yeah. And no, that's I, what they should be doing. I, I just I, I put one thing where I get sick listening to people saying I wouldn't be a politician because, uh, you know, I know they're really well paid, but they take a lot of abuse. And then I think of the frontline staff who are still waiting 
you know, nine months now on a thousand quid bonus that they were promised uh, the majority haven't even received it yet, you know? So They're broken, Tony, I, I, I've, you know, 13 years I've been in and out of the health service for the last 13 years. So I've you're seen, the drain. You're, you're, well, I, I've on, seen, which is not just, I've seen the decline and I've seen the decline, but they are actually broken people. Now, everybody's just going in trying to protect their own little, their own little space. There's no cohesion. It's chaotic care is what it is. It's chaotic care and we need to address it as such. Sam, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about there, a friend of mine who actually is a nurse um, retweeted a tweet from the UK and basically was the cost of coffee barista was getting paid £11.25 an hour and the nurse on a band five NHS scale nurse with 13 11 an hour. You know, I mean, what was that? Two quite a difference. And we shouldn't. Yeah. And again, and we don't want to pit people against one another, but it just shows what, where society places its value. We all, everybody stood and clapped. You know, it was famous in the UK for, you know, Boris leading everybody, rounds of applause, everybody go outside and clap for carers. Uh, and, you know, he got COVID and it's going to change him. Didn't change him at all. <laughs> like it, it put no manners on him. It, it maybe gave him a couple of more sympathy, but nonetheless, we, we are in the mess that we're in. I am conscious of time, folks. We've gone way over where we were supposed to go. So I am sorry to, to wrap this, but I do want to thank everybody for tuning in, everybody for listening. Uh, it's great to, to catch up with uh, Lilith, Emma, Sam, and it's lovely to be joined by Alfonso. This will be the last time you'll hear from him because apparently he's going to be doing regular slots on RTE going forward only, and he's uh, he's too big for he's too big for us nowadays. Uh, Martin, you know, actually, give it to you. It's nice. It's nice to see you. People, people. Despite it all, people don't despise you. So no, they don't. They despise you, Tony. I don't know how this works, but that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one, no one likes me. It's all good. Thanks for listening, folks. And um, we're oh, we have um, Aiden Regan joining us tomorrow, and we have hopefully some coverage of the. Uh, I hate to say, it, but we're gone over hundred days in Ukraine and some of the things that have happened there, and that's just tomorrow. So more coming. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye bye.